0: As I said earlier, this Shabbat we conclude the book of Genesis and with it the story of our patriarchs. With the primary drama of Joseph and his brothers now behind us, the narrative ties up loose ends this week with the blessings given to each of Jacob's sons and the final days of both Jacob and Joseph. The parsha's name Vayechi, and he lived, is misleading in a similar way to an earlier Torah portion, Chayei Sarah the life of Sarah. You see, whenever life is invoked in the name of the Torah portion, there is little question that death is on the way. Thus, while Chaye Sarah tells of the deaths of both Sarah and Abraham, Vayechi, and he lived, tells of when Jacob and Joseph, and all of Joseph's generation, die. Genesis concludes with the Israelites dwelling in Egypt, and next week, again, Exodus will open and a new pharaoh will arise who does not know Joseph. The story of our redemption from slavery will begin. Tonight, I'd like to focus on the opening encounter of this week's Torah portion. Joseph is told that his father, Jacob, is ill. He takes his own sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to see their grandfather. On his deathbed, Jacob makes a surprising declaration. He says, Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, shall be mine. Jacob stakes his claim in Joseph's sons and treats them as his own, raising their portion of his estate to the level of Joseph and his brothers. This is both an honor and a setback for Joseph. On one hand, his sons will enjoy a much larger inheritance and level of status than originally projected at the same time, though, Jacob is once again meddling in his son's affairs. And we've all seen what happens when Joseph and his family are treated with favoritism. But the next words out of Jacob's mouth are what truly throw us for a loop. Jacob looks up at Ephraim and Manasseh and says, Mi Ele, who are these? For all the importance and value which Jacob claims his grandchildren hold over him, he embarrassingly cannot recognize them. How can Jacob not know his own grandchildren? And how can he purport to take such pride as to raise them to the level of his own children while at the same time not even knowing who they are? Joseph awkwardly responds, They are my sons whom God has given me here. Joseph senses Jacob's derision at the children being born in Egypt. And so Joseph responds that this has all been part of God's plan. I cannot help but admit that reading this section of the parsha this week made me think about the current relationship between the American and Israeli Jewish communities. Like Jacob and his sons, we share the bond of generations and a common ancestry. Like Jacob's family, Some of us have chosen to live outside of the promised land, and have even prospered there, but we remain united in peoplehood and family, and regularly restate our unity. Nevertheless, increasingly over the past years, our communities have on one hand made claims regarding the other, while on the other hand asking ourselves the same question. Mi ele, who are these people? Last weekend, the New York Times ran a front page article on the debate surrounding Nashot HaKotel, the women of the wall. For those of you less familiar with the issue, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, considered by many Jews as the holiest site in all of the world, was liberated from Jordanian rule in 1967, and became a national symbol of Israel's historical legacy. However, over the past three decades, the site of the Kotel has been transformed gradually into an orthodox synagogue and has been put under the supervision and auspices of the Israeli rabbinate. Originally, a partition was inserted to separate men and women under halakhic law. Later, the women's section was reduced to make more room for the men. In addition, women were barred from reading from the Torah, wearing a talit or performing other ritual acts which are halakhically restricted to men. Nashot HaKotel, Women of the Wall, began in the 1980s as a small group of modern Orthodox women, exclusively from outside of Israel, who sought to celebrate Rosh Chodesh, the new moon, through prayer and reading of the Torah. This group of women has been subject to harassment and scorn over the past years. More recently, leaders of the group, including Anat Hoffman, who directs the Israel Religious Action Center, have been arrested, strip-searched, and forced to spend the night in prison only because they dared to wear a talit, or read from the Torah. Last month, the state issued a new round of restrictions and harsher punishments for evading the laws of the Kotel. And yet, beyond all of this controversy lies a fundamental disconnect between the diasporic and Israeli communities. Nashot HaKotel is an entirely diasporic-led movement. In addition, the outrage over this perceived inequality at the waiting wall is also entirely diasporic in nature. The secular Israeli public, which makes up nearly 80% of Israeli Jews, does not understand what's the big deal here. They look at us American, British, and French Jews and ask themselves, Mi ele?" Who are these people? Who are they and why are they so riled up about what happens at the Wailing Wall? For the average Israeli, the Kotel is treated the way we Hawaiians, where I grew up, treat Pearl Harbor, or how I surmise most of you local San Franciscans treat Alcatraz, a tourist trap and an elementary school stop. (laughs) For the average Israeli, it matters little what a group of Orthodox Jews do at the Wailing Wall. After, after all, they're the ones that go there all the time. So what does it matter if they want to follow more stringent orthodox restrictions? Meanwhile, we diasporic Jews ask the same question of our Israeli brethren. Mi Ele, who are they? Who are these people who call themselves Jews and yet would follow such discriminating and unequal policies? Who are these people who ask women to sit at the back of the bus in religious neighborhoods who refuse to recognize or publicly fund progressive congregations. And we wonder, just like Joseph, how can they stake a claim over us when they don't even know us? How can they ask for our undying political and economic support without any knowledge or consideration of our feelings in the matter? Our Israeli brethren look back at us with the same questions, who are these Americans who sit comfortably thousands of miles from danger while we are assailed from all sides, who don't need to send their children into military service, who come here and fly to Israel once in a while to celebrate the holidays and then go home. Who are they to ask us, to challenge us on our policies? In the ultimate sign of this schism, the Netanyahu government responded earlier this week to this increased scrutiny on Nashotokotel by ordering a study and recommendation of policies of the Wailing Wall to be led by Natan Sharansky of the Sochnut, the Agency for the Jewish Diaspora. That is, the Israeli government is claiming that the Wailing Wall issue is entirely a foreign relations issue and an issue of the Jewish diaspora. There is no national interest in what happens between women at Wailing Wall. While the issue of the Wailing Wall resonates most strongly in this part of this is far from the only issue in which Israel and the diasporic communities fail to see eye to eye. Take for another example the complete befuddlement by the Israeli population over American Jewish support, the Democratic Party, and specifically in re-electing Barack Obama. In Israel, Obama is often portrayed as a sympathizer to Hamas and Hezbollah, who is intent on selling out. Israel for foreign interests. Israeli polls taken even in late October demonstrated a landslide victory for Romney had the Israeli population had their say. And yet, Jewish support for Obama and Democratic Party have hardly waned. About 80% of the Jewish American population tends to vote Democrat. And it's been that way largely since Nixon's southern strategy. Last month, Obama won 76% of the American Jewish vote, a tiny drop-off at all. The Israeli population is vexed by the outpouring of American Jewish support for this purported enemy of Israel. But the real medicine for the Israeli public comes from further analysis into the Jewish vote. When Jewish voters are impressed on why they vote the way they do, a clear response is given. Israel is no longer the factor but one of many factors by which Jewish Americans vote. Moreover, Israel isn't even a primary factor, most often surpassed by jobs in the economy, social issues, and the environment. Israel is most often listed as fourth by American Jews. To this, Israeli political commentators have been asking the same question over and over again for the past month. Mi ele, who are these people? who don't value Israel above these other competing factors. How can we claim to be of one people when we clearly fail to value our connection above all other issues? The widening chasm between the American and Israeli Jewish communities is not new. Just like Jacob's sons, these brethren communities have been growing apart for years. The American Jewish community clearly states its support for a two-state solution And yet Israel responded most recently by announcing new housing starts in key neighborhoods of East Jerusalem in which the Palestinians hope to live. The American Jews speak longingly and hopefully of a peace process. While in Israel, and I'll put it bluntly here, the peace process is dead. Next month, Israelis will go to the polls to elect a new Knesset and a new prime minister. And yet, even the leftist Avoda party has p- completely eschewed a peace platform. The two communities ask the question anew. Mi ele, who are they? Various commentators seek to explain how Jacob cannot recognize his own grandchildren of whom he professes such deep love and connection. Some argue that like his father Jacob, like his father Isaac, Jacob has lost his eyesight and can no longer see them. Others argue that as they were raised in Egypt, Menashe and Ephraim have assimilated and look and dress like Egyptians. In these two answers, we find two ends of the spectrum. We can hope that neither side has really changed and that it is merely our eyesight from time to time that fails us. That if we rub our eyes again, that it'll seem as though all is the same. Or we can come to grips with the fact that as we have lived further apart and grown apart we have changed in our to some degree no longer the people that we once knew according to Midrash Ephraim and Manasseh assuage Jacob of his fears by whispering to him "Shma Yisrael Arunai Eloheinu Adonai Echad by quoting this foundational code of Judaism the brothers affirm that their differences are only skin deep in the end we Israeli and American Jews do share a common connection and sense of peoplehood. But unless this relationship is cared for and a dialogue open between our communities, <laughs> creed may dissolve into, ma- into mantra, simple quotes from the good old days. I hope for the sake of both of our peoples that this is not the case, and that rather than stating to each other, Mi Ele, who are they? we say to them, Hineni. Here I am. Shabbat shalom.